Welcome to this episode of an IntelliCast, Season 2, Episode 17. Joining me, as always, my co-host, Brian Lamar. Hey, Adam. Strong intro, by the way. I am out. <laughs> <laughs> as always, IntelliCast is brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. You can find IntelliCast via email, IntelliCast at EMI-RS.com. Um, if you want to reach us on Twitter, it's EMI underscore research. Um, also on Twitter is IntelliCast1. My own personal Twitter is Adam Jolly, all one word. Brian, yep. what is your login info for P2 Solo? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's a good brand. There's all there's passwords and login info, but I'm going to hold off on that one. Uh, what's going on with you personally? Anything cool? Um, let's see. Warm weather is here. That's cool. Oh, every day. 30 degree temperature differences. <laughs> yes. I love this. Um, done with travel for a while, so I'm excited to just kind of hang out and get things done in the yard and normal life for a little bit how about you yeah a lot of mulching uh found out that the general rule of mulching is think about how many bags it's going to take you and double it oh (laughs) that's the general rule i think for mulching outside yeah but sun is shining wake up every morning it's 40 degrees go home every night it's 85 it's the best wonderful cincinnati how do you dress um what's going on in the research industry to be honest not much you know it's kind of it's kind of like a downtime right now. I think we're on the verge of getting a lot of news, but right now it's kind of a, a dead week. As soon as we say that, something will break this afternoon probably. Right? Yeah, something's going to pop on us. Um, so let's dive into uh, fun stuff first. Let's go Mount Rushmore. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, let's dive right into Mount Rushmore stuff. So uh, well, first we'll talk about why we're going to talk about the Mount Rushmore. So um, this weekend, uh, one of my favorite days, and it's really one of my favorite weekends, yeah. is the first weekend of May in Cincinnati. Yeah. So. Um, on Saturday, you have usually there's NBA playoffs. The baseball season is starting. Um, you're fresh off the NFL draft, so you have a lot of stuff to talk about. But then uh, about quarter till seven, you have the Kentucky Derby, yeah. which is like an entire day for me. Yeah, um, one of the best days of, I've been to dozens of derbies. It's just an unbelievable thing for me as a Kentuckian, as somebody like I I well up, I cry every year when my old Kentucky home plays. Yep. It is just the one of my best days of my year. And this year, some things happened. Yes. We had a little scandal. Yeah. First of all, I cried in Mel Kentucky home as well. And yeah. I, have you heard the John Prine version? Of oh, Kentucky yeah. Home? It's the oh, best version. Unbelievable. Sure. They should have John Prine come sing it instead of the University of Little Band, which does a great job. But sure. If I want to cry, I really want to cry. Yeah. yeah. So there's a scandal in the race, which I think that most of our listeners probably, you know, whatever. But it's a big deal on this region. And, um, it was kind of a big deal. Like it could have caused like a seven horse pileup. Yeah. And let me tell you, a seven horse pileup is not good news. Right. Especially now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for those wondering, um, there are actually rules to horse racing besides just finishing first. You might've thought that was the only rule. There's more. Uh, you can't impede another horse's traffic and that's just for horse safety. So there are yeah. lanes as you run and you can't cross over into another lane when somebody is already in that lane, much like driving. Right. So um, the Leader horse, horse number seven called Maximum Security, was cutting over as he came across the final turn and cut off to the one horse, Will War of Will. Um, I know all these names because I had an exacta of the two and I thought oh, I was you? about to make some cash. Oh, wow. But uh, so he cut off War of Will and impeded War of Will and they actually clipped his legs a couple of times. Nobody fell, nobody was hurt. Yeah. War of Will was the only horse that was impeded on its race. However, well, first of all, the War of Will jockey. Right. Save the day. Right. That guy should get an award. I don't know how he did it. Held him up the whole time, right? So um, what winds up winning is uh, Maximum Security wins the race. War of Will finishes, I think, fifth. 
Um, and he wins a race by a length and a half over the 21 horse, which was Country House, which um, I have to believe was some kind of autocorrect mistake from it being Country Horse. I, I called it Country Horse for two days. <laughs> and then it became Country House. <laughs> so uh, the race ends and an objection comes up. Like somebody says, hold on, that horse kind of came wide. It was it, it yeah. cut off the one horse. Something had to have happened. Was it the one horse that called the objection? No, it was not the one horse. It was not the horse that was impeded. It was not the horse that was set up. It was the 21 horse country house yeah. and its trainer, Bill Mott, yeah. that called the objection. Um, did, did another did two jockeys call it or just that one? Just the one. Okay. So what happens then is it goes to a group called the Stewards, which are really like arbitrator, like judges type. There's three of them in every racetrack. And they review the video to try to see was there an actual objection? Was there... Did the seven horse impede anybody? By the way, can we talk about this for a second? Yeah. That 20 minutes it yeah. took was fascinating television for me. It was because you get, you interview the winning jockey, you interview yes. the winning trainer, yes. then controversy. Yes. You interview the objective trainer, yes. you interview the objective jockey. You would go back to the winning yes. jockey, the winning trainer, and they and, don't know what to say. And Mike Tirico was amazing as yeah. always. Yeah. Probably the only horse race he ever does, but he killed it. And then I love the the camera angle of the of the stewards looking at the video, looking at like a little thirteen inch TV. Yeah, like how do we not have a sixty five inch high def four K TV when right. you're determining the winner of this much money? Right. Like, but it was fascinating twenty minutes of TV. So what happens is uh, the winner, in quotation marks, maximum security gets removed, gets taken down, gets disqualified, meaning that the 21 horse, the horse that was never impeded, that was never a problem for anything that maximum security did, that lost the race fair and square, uh, wins the race by finding a loophole in the system and finding an objection. Yeah. Your thoughts? I think it was the right call because... Most of the angles they showed on NBC were not the right angle. Uh, yeah, not until the very end did they find the right angle. Right. right. I didn't see that angle till Sunday. So 24 hours later, I guess there's like a, you know, a track camera that gets that angle that you see. And you see he really moves probably th- three lanes over. Right. And first of all, I feel bad for the horse and the jockey because he said the crowd kind of got to yeah. him, which is this a whole other discussion about 150,000 people yelling at a freaking horse who's getting whipped going around a corner. And right. <laughs> that's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but the decision, I think, was probably the right one. And I think it has to be in place because of the safety of those horses. That's I how agree. I feel. Yeah, it's just something that you don't see, first of all, in the Kentucky Derby, and second of all, by somebody that had nothing to do with the result right. to call the objection. It's almost like he shouldn't be allowed. Like it should be, right. the objection should be removed. If the other horse had done it that actually had been impeded, that would make sense. 100%. That, that horse was charging. It could have won, probably. Agreed. Um, so, my question to you is is this a black eye on the horse racing industry? I think it's fan- I think it's the best thing that happened to horse racing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because we're talking about it. Who, True. who else do you talk about it? True. Now, do, do you take a back seat in talking about it since both horses are not running in the Preakness stuff? Well, that's, I mean, this is the opportunity for horse racing to build up a grudge match, right? Right. And neither of them are racing in the next biggest race at Preakness in a couple weeks. Right. Maybe they could run in the Belmont. That'd be nice. Yeah. I think they both, at least one of them said they're not going to run in the Belmont, I think. And then I thought, let's do this little Tiger Woods. Who did he play against? Phil. Rory? Phil. Phil. Yeah. yeah. Tiger versus Phil. Let's do just those two horses on a track and just yeah. go. I like it. I would watch it. I'd watch it too. I, uh, yeah, it's crazy to me. I, this is just, it's just more, um, there's a word that I want to use a word that my dad used when I was talking to him. So my dad, um, 
was in the racehorsing industry for 25, 30 years. His dad, all of his brothers and sisters, it goes back like three generations. Everyone is in thoroughbred horse racing. And so I, I'm always talking to my dad on Derby Day and he said it's chicken something. Yeah. And this is even more of that by not yeah. racing him in the Preakness. It's almost like yes. I won. You can't take this away from me. Right. 50 years from now, no one's going to remember the objection. They're just going to see I'm a trainer that won the Kentucky Derby. This yeah. horse won the Kentucky Derby. And it, you, it's almost like the Seinfeld where he won the race in yeah. junior high yeah. because of a false start and yeah. he chose not to run again. Yes. <laughs> he never raced ever again so that he could keep his legacy as being right. the fastest like, superhuman junior high kid ever. Yeah. It's that type of similar thing. And then this horse could just go to stud and make millions of dollars. Not right. Life. Not too bad. Um, anyway, that leads us to our Mount Rushmore and that is top four sports controversies. Yeah, that's a pretty good, good right? Yeah, I think this is pretty controversial. So uh, give me one of your sports controversies. All right. My first one is a, a, the, the recent, this is pretty recent, the Penn State scandal from a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Jeez. That was just a, just a horrible scandal. One of the worst. I mean, that, that's, that scandal goes beyond sports. That was Cover-ups, everything. That's yeah. my first one. Uh, mine is not that. Uh, my number one is uh, the 1985 NBA draft lottery, the New York Knicks, oh, yeah. the frozen envelope. Yeah. So the rumors are that the envelope was put in a freezer. I've also heard that the envelope was put in a microwave yeah. so that the person drawing the envelopes out of who would get the number one pick would be able to feel the New York Knicks that was a different temperature and pull it out. So they would get the number one pick in the NBA draft. Yeah. What actually happens if you watch the video is that when the commissioner puts in the envelope, he rams the corner of the envelope into like the big bubble thing. And so there's an obvious crease in the corner as well. So whether it was frozen, whether it was heated, or whether you could see an obvious crease in the corner of the envelope, that envelope stuck out from everything else. The Knicks get the envelope. They get the rights to Patrick Ewing. It never matters. They never win anything anyway. But they got... At the time, everybody thought, buddy thought that Patrick Ewing was going to change the NBA and going to change how things were. So, 1985 NBA draft lottery. I didn't know the corner story. Yeah. Huh. I, I feel like Bill Simmons has broken that down like the Zabruder film. So. That's right. Yeah. Um, all right. Number number two, another old one. The Olympics from 1972. Most people aren't aware of this, but the Soviet Union stole a freaking gold medal in basketball yeah, from the Americans. True. Basically stole it twice. It was horrible. Um, there's documentaries on it. I highly, if you're into sports and scandals as I am, um, I would go out and watch some, figure out how the you know the Soviet Union beat us. But then you know the wall came down 15 years later. Yeah, so we won yeah. in the long run. Yeah, or democracy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, my is uh, the 2002 Lakers King Western Conference Finals. Oh, this no. was uh, <laughs> Tim Donny, which was like where the referee he called fouls he shaved points um they obviously wanted the lakers to make the finals the lakers shot 26 more free throws in the game six and seven than the kings did and kind of stole the series away from the kings and then from that came the investigation that nba refs were shaving points and that there was some kind of conspiracy among the referees um, and the sport got cleaned up a little bit but still um it's uh, the kings never rebounded so since 2002 the kings have made the playoffs twice and oh. so um really just ruin and Sacramento is become a trash town. Was that the first title for Kobe and uh, it was the third they won. They, they had oh, that was the third time. Yeah. Okay. All right. My next scandal. And this is kind of the entire sport, but I'm going to mention a name, Lance Armstrong. Yeah. They cheated. It. Like it was crazy. What was going on in cycling? Like just cheating with bikes and steroids. He was doing blood infusions every yeah. day. And they had these things inside a lot of the bikes that made him kind of go a little bit faster. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm, by the way, I'm a little upset that he got, I mean, he's it kind of ruined Lance Armstrong's life. who was a hero at the time. 
beaten cancer, raised so much money for cancer. Everybody's wearing the little yellow bracelets. Um, the big Nike deal. Yeah. So much, so much um, attention to a sport that isn't like a major sport or anything, and it just came crumbling down. I think the, the U.S. Postal Service sued him and won like millions of dollars. Yeah. It's kind of a crazy story. I was watching. Uh... I watched dodgeball the other day. It was randomly on, like making the cable runs, and yeah. Lance Armstrong comes in at the end. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like we used to think Lance Armstrong was a superhero. Yeah, but anyway, that's something to think about. Like, does should we forgive Lance Armstrong? Have we like has Lance, Lance Armstrong? I think has kind of gotten off light because of the money that he raised for cancer. Yeah, you would agree with that, right? I don't know. Like, is he kind of like a a great like the least villainous villain ever because of the money that he raised, well, even though it was under false pretenses. I feel like he, I don't I'm not an expert on Lance Armstrong, but it seemed like he was kind of a jerk about it. Oh, he was. Yes. So that didn't help him. Right. He was a jerk. He kind of, in, you know, what you're probably, maybe your dad would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of stuff. But if he had come out and apologized and been contrite about it, we would have forgiven him sooner. So I think it went on a lot longer um, he did not have good PR skills at all. So, yeah, I kind of agree with you, I guess. Yeah. Uh, my number three is uh, Michael Jordan's, quote, retirement, unquote, to play yeah. professional baseball. Yeah. Which I do not believe. My conspiracy theory and the controversy is that, um, as everyone knows at that point, Jordan was at his height of power. So he was also at his height of gambling. Yeah. Um, and his father was murdered. Yeah. By some not great people. Yeah. And I believe that he got caught up in gambling and was suspended for a year by the NBA and had yeah. went and played minor league baseball just to keep doing something, keep in the spotlight, that, keep the thing alive. The, that's the strong rumor. It's been around for a while. I can't believe that. I mean, how long ago was that? 20 years ago? 20 25. Plus? Yeah. It, it's never, there's been no evidence of anything. So you would think a memo would leak. I mean, you don't want to destroy the legacy. Yeah. Right now, now that he, when he, since he's still alive. Maybe that's the deal that they made, that he made. But I don't remember who the commissioner was at the time. Stern. Maybe, maybe it was just a freaking handshake deal. There's no evidence of anything. Like, hey, I won't destroy your legacy. We won't. We won't divulge any of these facts. But you just go do whatever you need to do for right. two years. Right. I'm with that's you. A good one. All right. Last one for you. I'm going with the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan. Oh, that's a good one. Um, mostly because I just like two of the best figure skaters in the world, and one allegedly hires a friend of hers to bashed the other one in the leg right before the Olympics. That's crazy in retrospect. Imagine that happened today. True. Yeah, that's a good one for me. Uh, the Olympics were much see, and then, you know, the Olympics, she was crying. And it was oh, the Olympics scenario. were amazing. And then she got destroyed in the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my last one is uh, Pete Rose uh, banned from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Because I agree with it. Oh. Uh, I think that he put in jeopardy the integrity of the game and who was going to win and who was not going to win games. And so I can agree with his band where I stand for letting somebody like an Alex Rodriguez in the hall of fame, even though he cheated with steroids because yeah. his cheating was for the beneficial benefit of the game so that his team could win so that he would be better. It only put yeah. into account the integrity of the stats and who cares about numbers. That's my like in a nutshell thing. I feel bad for Pete Rose Hassel has kind of a Lance Armstrong situation where he yeah. was a jerk about it forever, right. refused to apologize, refused to admit. If he had admitted to it and apologized 30 years ago, I think I think um, he may be in the Hall of Fame today. I don't think he sees it in his lifetime now, which is kind of sad. If you live in Cincinnati, he still lives here and he's around and right. he's kind of 
this is maybe weird for people to hear, but he's kind of a hero in this town. He grew up here. And so it's kind of a sad situation for him. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Who do you think gets in the, the Hall of Fame first? Like Clemens or Bonds or A-Rod or Rose? You think they'll probably forgive the steroid people first, right? Yeah. Bonds and A-Rod for sure. Yeah. I think Bonds will get in soon, especially with this new committee, like with the Veterans Committee, where yeah. you know, like Harold Baines is getting in this year. Yeah. Like when it gets down to that. Bonds gets in and some of these older Hall of Famers that like hold the in- integrity of the numbers so high, like yeah. once they are no longer with us, yeah. I think Bonds will get in. Um, I think Clemens could be a while. Yeah. Because again, he was a jerk. He was a jerk. Um, it's just the pettiness of baseball writers too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Agreed. So, um, all right. You have a best or a worst sports controversy? Anything that's just like stupid, you're like, this isn't even a controversy? Or a I don't conspiracy. Remember. I wrote it down. I don't remember what it's on seen on my piece of paper. Maybe I already <laughs> talked about it. It's all right. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the market research. So okay. with nothing going on in the news, we want to talk about just like a topic. And it's something that's been coming up in a lot of different conferences lately. And, and really a lot of products that we see from sample companies, from research firms are kind of combating this issue. And that is like exp- respondent experience yeah. in the market research industry. Yeah. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to make it to where respondents want to engage in more market research, really want to give their insights. And so if you see like the evolution of quantitative research, for instance, going from, you know, a face-to-face to telephone to online to whatever's next, yeah. like that is all for the respondent experience or the, at least the starter of it was for respondent experience. And then it becomes about cost and things like that. Yeah. So high level, um, what are your thoughts on some of like the new things going on with respondent experience or is this really, are we spending too much time of it? Like what is the problem with respondent experience? Well, I think the general problem is that we have fewer people taking surveys and we have really low response rates among people that agree to take surveys. And that just creates a huge problem in our entire industry. So I don't think we've done a very good job of creating a good experience for the respondents. Back when I started in 2000 at Harris Interactive, we gave results of the surveys to respondents. So this is kind of the beginning of online research. And a lot of companies did that because um, this was our first chance really to show respondents, hey, you took a survey. Now we're going to show you kind of the results from the survey and they're kind of part of the process, right? You're not just giving anonymous feedback. Oh, now I can see my feedback compared to, to other people that are taking the survey, right? That was kind of cool and improved the respondent experience. Um, we don't do that anymore. We rarely tell people what topics in the survey are. Uh, there's a long list of things. We haven't made surveys device friendly. Um, we're still doing these lengthy 30, 40 minute surveys. We highly underpay people. So, I mean, there's, we could, brainstorm that for 10 minutes, but I don't think as an industry we've, we've utilized technology as well as we should have to improve it for them. Now in, some, in some ways, we've made some progress. Um, most ways, we've probably worsened this responding experience. I get that. And I think a lot of times, like, so we're coming up with a lot more ways for like gamification. You're coming up with different ways to collect new insights, right? Whether it's yeah. neuro, augmented reality, some kind of to Video. Get more, right? Video. Yeah. At some point, does do those new things become what is now the 40 minute survey quantitative survey or or does that become the grid no what i mean by that is like does it okay so i want to give my insights so i have to wear a cap or i have to wear some kind of video and take a video of this is me in a store and this is all my experiences things like that does that become as burning like as much as a burden on a respondent because we're getting too cutting edge or we're asking them to do too many tasks yeah just like fill out this grid of questions yeah maybe we are 
Um, there's, there's a line between cool <laughs> yes. and practical. Right? Yes. Right. Is it practical for the random person who just feels like giving feedback for a survey, right? To make right. a couple bucks here and there. Absolutely not practical. Um, we haven't figured out how to do, I mean, we haven't figured out how to do a survey on an iPhone yet. Right. I mean, yeah. we, literally, we have not done that. We still have people type in open ends instead of doing, generally doing some sort of voice. Right. Voice um, dictation type thing, right? Voice dictation. We haven't figured out grids. We haven't figured out anything on even on the iPhone yet. And so I hope that we can, we got to start there, I think, making surveys more device friendly. And I know we've, we've been talking about this forever. It's kind of sad that we're still talking about it. Um, that's the first step we have to do. And, you know, we can still do a lot of cool things, I think. Um, we're doing a lot of things with video and FaceTime, especially qualitative. Like I've sat in a couple of like qualitative presentations. They're doing really cool stuff. Yeah. And they're, I think in many ways they're improving the respondent experience in qualitative and that, you know, one-on-one interviews can be a FaceTime instead of somebody maybe in your house. Right. Um, we can do diaries a lot easier now. It used to be like paper diaries we would mail to people and they had to fill out, you know, a book. Right. Now we're doing those online and I think they've done a pretty good job. And who, I don't know, I just thought of this. Who would have thought that qualitative research would be more practical for respondents and improve the experience and a little bit more innovative than quantitative? You think of quantitative as being, maybe those are the people that should have done it, but I think that we should, we should probably steal a lot from qualitative researchers. I think there's like the responsibility is heightened when you're seeing the people for the most part, right? When you yeah. have like this more in depth, like more of a relationship with the respondent because yeah. it's more, it's deeper, it's more focused, it's more intimate than with a quantitative survey when they're just a, an ID basically. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's you have, anonymous. yeah, you care a little bit. We have a little bit more empathy towards the Absolutely. respondent experience that way. That's right? a good insight. Hey, <laughs> um, I guess uh, one of my other questions as far as respondent experience is, um, is, is there a way? So I think about like recycling for me, right? <laughs> And so when you, when you're, when recycling first starts to hit to where you can at least get your own bin in your house, say that's like 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. And then it took education about the importance of recycling about the impact that you could have if you did recycle to see a ramp up in like the usage of recycling and like people, you know, now they'll come to your house, you can get your own trash can. Like there's, there's everywhere you go, there's airport, there's recycling bins. Everything is like, or sorting tables at my kid's school with compost. And you almost get publicly shamed if you don't. Right. right? And it's, it was an education by, yes. by somebody. There's not like a national recycling committee, but there was yeah. like an education on the importance of it for the greater good. Yeah, there was, they had a good tagline. It was um, act locally, think globally, something like something that. Something like that. Reduce, reuse, recycle too, yes. right? Is there, and I don't even know who leads this. Maybe it's a PNG, like a huge spender in market yeah. research that pushes the importance of for the greater good yes. market research insights. Because right now yes. it almost has this view of like um, – like big brother or it's a lot of like capitalism is like yeah. they want to know things so they can sell more, but like really it's for the greater good. Cause it's not just consumer packaged goods that people yep. are doing market research on. Yep. Right. It's, it's, it's political, it's policy. It's, it's all these different healthcare, all these yeah. different things. Like, um, is that an answer and who leads that? Yeah, that's, that's a big question that I've been struggling with. Is that, and it probably take 20 years too, just like recycling, right? but like, I think in an ideal world, it's SMR and Insights Association, but they're they're not going to do anything until the client side does it. So like the Procter & Gamble's and the giant companies that spend millions and millions on research until they demand it. But I was talking to somebody from P&G at a local conference, and 
um, they were on that case panel, right? Yeah. And they're, they're sitting right next to a competitor that worked at Col Colgate Palmolive. Right. So I was thinking to myself, why should P&G or why should Colgate Palmolive improve the industry? Because they're just going to improve their competitors indirectly, right? But maybe the P&G, their competitive advantage would be we, we are better ourselves at determining who's an engaged respondent or designing surveys that are more respondent friendly or working in ways that with our suppliers and our partners in order to conduct better research, that's our competitive advantage. So I don't even know if it's in the best interest of those companies to lift up the industry and try to improve quality. So it's a conundrum for me. And I think that I think the people that work at PNG they want to lift the industry, right? Right. But they, I mean, they've got to produce profit. They've got stakeholders. They've got shareholders, and uh, you know, a stock price has got to go up. And I don't know if telling Colgate and aligning with their competitors to try to lift it up is in their best interest. That's, I don't know. Maybe I'm skeptical. Um, yeah, because it is kind of a competitive advantage that you can use, right? If you have the best, there's something there. I don't know. I mean, you see that with like if a market research firm comes out with something that like yeah. a new product they have that's going to better predict if somebody buys things, like use that as competitive advantage against other market research firms rather than what's best for the industry. This isn't a nonprofit industry. Right. Like we like right. to act like it exactly. is sometimes. Right. Like there's a lot of, there's, this is a what, $3 billion industry. Yeah. But you would think that if a, a let's say a panel company decides we're going to focus on the respondents and we're going to pay them more than other companies. We're going to treat them better than other companies. We're going to give them better surveys. We're going to give them partial results. Right. Um, and, a, with, you know, with capitalism, you would think that they would emerge as um, people would see that and they would have maybe more loyal respondents and that clients would say, oh, this company provides better data and it would emerge like that. But that hasn't happened, and there's a lot of different companies out there, and I don't see any of them doing anything like that. So I bet somebody's tried it, and it just hasn't worked. Or right. maybe the clients, I think at the end of the day, the clients want to buy a $2 sample, and they may know that they can get a better quality sample at $5, but they can get 90% of the business question answered for 40% of the price. Right, and that's I agree. being skeptical again. No, there's something there. Hey, let's get feedback from our audience on this. That's one. the biggest part. I want to hear what other people have to say about it, right? Like, yeah. put us on Twitter. Go to Intellicast. One. Go to EMI underscore Research. Go to my. Uh, reach out to us via email. Um, our own personal email. Like, or if you want to come on the podcast to talk about this, yeah. like, I would love, love to, to get somebody. somebody that is like trying to innovate the customer experience and what it means to them. Yeah. You know, and like, what does what does, are they changing? And what is their thing? Like, are they changing the customer experience so that they can get higher response rates on their surveys and they can get more answers and they can sell that as a differentiator? Or do yeah. they think that is something that can be put in the industry to like better it? Yep. You know, one or the other. And I'm okay with how their answer, to be honest. Right. Right. I Absolutely. mean, Dyneta is yeah. my best friend, right? They're yes. a $600 million company. And the things that they do to improve yes. survey research helps EMI every Absolutely. day. Yep. You know, I mean, it's great. All right. Um, what else can we talk about? Any current events going on? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, you want to do a rant real quick? You want to? You have a market research rant first, right? I do have a market research rant. Give it to me. So, it, well, I'll just say it. This asking for IDs thing. So if you work in sample, at the end of a study, it's just relentless asking for IDs. Yeah. We do it too. So we're just as much to blame. But sometimes I manage my own research and... As soon as the study's over, I need IDs. I need IDs every day, all day long. Right. It's just so annoying. I, I guess I understand the rationale for it because you can't invoice something. You don't know, have I many people are accepting. And there's, sure. There's a, you know, again, we're in a for-profit world, so 
you have to get those books straight as soon as possible right. the cash flow, right? Right. Um, but it's so annoying. I can't even imagine from, like on the end client side of the, you know, all these suppliers bugging them for, is it 200 IDs or 201 IDs? Right. Why remove that one person? Yo, like, oh my gosh, I'm arguing we're over four. Yeah, we're off $4 here. Right. Help me. So that's my little rant. That makes sense to me. Um, it is very weird because even like when we talk to our, our accounting doesn't come from the market research industry. So there, you know, how is it that we have to wait for these IDs to know how profitable you are? Like yeah. how do, you know, I mean, like you can kind of, you can do kind of a P&L or budget sheet for it, but at the same time, like you can't predict, I mean, you could be off a couple hundred dollars and then you have to go yeah. back and change and maybe something comes back later. Like, oh, we didn't accept these IDs. Can we yeah. get a... You know, and automation's helping a little bit in that area, but certainly right. not rampant in our industry. Automation, you know, You're right? Because well, everything is up to is subjective of what's good and what's yes. bad, right? Yeah, I'm with it. You get a personal rant too? I don't. Do you? No, nah, I don't have anything. Everything's really good right now. Yeah, sun's out. Sun's out. Birds are chirping. <laughs> Uh, all right. What's, what else is going on with you? Anything? Uh, anything going on in the research industry? Are you speaking anything? Sigs? Anything you want to promote? Um, I have a SIG. Oh, yeah. Maybe there's a there's a little local conference. So John Huffman yeah. um, is a guy here locally. He's living Columbus, and he's doing a little SMR conference here in Cincinnati. It's called the Cincy Insights Jam. Jam. And is it, I think it's May 24th. It's a Thursday. Really good. It's a Wednesday. Wednesday. Um, so that, <laughs> this is great. This is great podcasting. The uh, 22nd of, of May. Yeah, the 22nd. In Cincinnati. And it's kind of a small little one-day conference. But kudos to John Huffman to try to put something together in Cincinnati and also partner with SMR, which I think they should have a better presence here. So I'll be attending that. And if, if you're in Cincinnati, it might be something to go to. I love it. And then – Salsa uh, dancing too. Oh, really? Yeah. That's not too bad. I'll go to that. Uh, other things coming up, uh, EMI-related. I know we've been pushing our uh, LLS campaign as we try to team up with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Greater Cincinnati. I've tried to raise more money in this like 10-week-long program and really come down on the wire. We just have a couple weeks left. Um, and we have kind of our, our crown jewel, um, if you will, of uh, events coming up. And then it's a night of baseball, bourbon, and barbecue coming up on May 16th. If you're in Cincinnati or you're within an hour drive, I highly recommend you come. It is at the Green Diamond Gallery, which – I've been to a number of times. I think it is the greatest collection of baseball memorabilia outside of Cooperstown. It is right down the road from the EMI offices in Montgomery. It's a privately owned museum. You'll see everything from World Series rings to uh, ticket stubs from all of Nolan Ryan's seven no-hitters, the rookie contract of Hank Aaron, the rookie contract of Roberto Clemente, the, uh, the check signed to the Cleveland Mayo Clinic from Lou Gehrig when he first found out that he had ALS. I mean, there are so many unbelievable baseball memorabilia there, signatures from everyone that's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, there's just all kinds of cool stuff there, and, and we're having an event there. We'll also be having some rare bourbon tasting, some barbecue from a local awesome restaurant. Um, tickets remain. Um, they're not that expensive. For a night like this where you're going to hear a lot of great baseball stories, um, the curators of the museum will yeah. be there telling stories about different types of things. I'll be there. I can walk around and tell you about some things. And then um, also we have former Cincinnati Reds baseball pitcher Tom Browning, who threw a perfect game in 1986. We'll also be there to tell some baseball stories. So um, really awesome night of just baseball, bourbon, barbecue, and camaraderie. I'll throw that in also. Man, that was amazing what you just mentioned. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it should be pretty great. So that's on the 16th. Uh, we'll put a link in the uh, episode details if you, if you wanted to register. And then you can also go to EMI's page or EMI's LLS page. Um, just go to EMI-RS.com and, and try to find your way from there. Uh, but we'll put it in the details as well if, you wanted, if you're interested in going. 
Sounds good. Not too bad. Um, other than that, we have no conferences to go to. We have nothing really promote going on, but you can find us at EMI underscore research on Twitter and telecast one on Twitter. My own personal Twitter is Adam Jolly. And then I can't stress this enough. I would love to hear your thoughts on the respondent experience. I would love for our guests to come on and talk about how they're dealing with respondent experience and what their thoughts are on it. What is kind of the breaking point of respondent experience. You can do that by emailing us at intellicast at EMI rs.com. Brian, anything to add before we leave? Oh, that was good. Good close. Hey, let's do it. Season two, episode 17. Have a great one. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.